You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features part two of my interview with TV critic, editor, and entertainment journalist, Makisha Madden-Toby. In the latter half of our conversation, Makisha discusses using stand-up comedy as a way to build community and find the joy in Seattle. And this was most certainly a necessary outlet because her job was made more difficult due to a toxic working environment. But after some time, Makisha decided to start sending out her resume, and she eventually landed another opportunity in Tacoma. There, she was given a position as a TV critic after an editor saw her stand-up comedy act. And while it was a great fit for her from the start, in some ways, she still had to grow into this new role. But this lane is definitely where she was meant to be. And she has been empowered to offer her unvarnished opinion on many things, including representation in television and film. Now, this doesn't mean her career is still not met with challenges, including facing racism as a Black journalist on red carpets. But this is a career she remains committed to, even as the media landscape continues to evolve. And she plans to go further and take on new projects, which I will let her tell you about. So please enjoy. Makisha, welcome back to the <laughs> podcast. How are you? I can't complain. Thank you, Delisha. Thanks for having me back. Yes, this is a, a fast follow. We keep it all the way real on this show. It's, it's a two-parter, but we, we're fast, like quickly following up with the second recording, so, which is always good. <laughs> I hate when they're all spread out. So no, you got to get it in when you can. Exactly. Uh, So let's get right into it. When we before we we finished uh, on part one, we talked about your foray into stand up comedy. Um, But what I also found incredibly fascinating is you chose to move to Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I went. I went where the opportunity was at the time. Uh, when I graduated from college, my first internship out of college was actually at the San Francisco Chronicle, where I actually had family um, who I bumped heads with, but that's for another day. But I was staying with a cousin and I had a base there. Um, but the San Francisco Chronicle got purchased by Hearst the summer I was there. That's just timing, right? It's, everything's timing. And suddenly I had to figure out, do you stay here and possibly get cut? Um, because that was, they were saying, we can't guarantee you anything because the, the agreement you had, the internship agreement, which was supposed to be for like a two-year stint was with the previous owners. So mm. Hearst may or may not have honored that. And everybody in my, you know, my direct supervisor were like, if you have anything else, <laughs> we will highly recommend for you to take the other thing. So I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And so thankfully that summer I had gone to uh, NABJ is the National Association for Black Journalists. They had had a conference with the other uh, minority institute or min- minority journalistic groups. So AAJA, Asian American Journalists Association, HNJA, uh, Hispanic National Journalist Association. And so all of them, and the Native American Journalist Association, all of them came together. They have a thing called Unity. I attended Unity, which oddly enough was in Seattle and met an editor at the Seattle Times who was like, you can come here. Um, and I was like, I don't know. I think I'm still be in San Francisco. And then I wasn't. And then I was like, hey, is that offer still staying? <laughs> um, had never been to Seattle before. Knew nothing about the Pacific Northwest or the the sort of, you know, passive aggressiveness of the Pacific Northwest, mm. which is a cultural thing. It's just, I, I've never seen more passive aggressive people in my life. I've never worn that much fleece or Gore-Tex <laughs> or been so happy when the sun came out, which was like a holiday or drink that much coffee. Like all of those things were just like so total cultural shocks to me. Um, 
talk about fish out of water, but you know, I made it work. I was there for four years. So I was yeah. two years in Seattle or a year in Seattle and three years in Tacoma where I went for a job job after um, I, I wanted to kind of keep going in the town of Santa area. I didn't know what was going to happen, but yeah, it worked out. And then that's when I started doing stand up. So, you know, it, it's interesting because people talk about comedians and many comedians are so funny because they, they have a lot of internal turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're sort of processing a lot of pain in the way that they do through levity and humor. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned sort of building this community while being a comedian. I do wonder, though, being there, being somewhere rife with passive aggression with maybe not a lot of people who look like you. And then the weather plays into it as well. Mm-hmm. Right? It plays all into your the, mood. Yeah, all of those things together. Where were you psychologically and emotionally at that time? Girl, I was struggling. Like, I I didn't, I had other interns my age, but not, not of, um, none of them were Black. <laughs> there were other minorities, which was nice. I had a, a woman who was Japanese and Hispanic, who was one of my best friends there. Um, a woman who's Native, another woman who's Asian. So, you know, oddly enough, Seattle just had a large Asian population. Um, I think it's geographical. I'm not sure or historic. There's some kind of thing. Uh, it's probably both. You know, the only thing I knew about Seattle in terms of black community was like uh, Quincy Jones had lived there. Exactly. <laughs> That's literally all I know as well. You know? And then once I moved there, it was funny. My, gra- my grandmother's sister, my aunt, was like, oh, I lived in Seattle for a spell. And I was like, wait, what? You know how old, people, old black people don't tell you things until they have to tell you things? So yes. I was like, well, when were you here? And she was like, oh, yeah, during the, you know, World War II, I, I worked on Boeing planes in Seattle. I was like, <laughs> For the war. I was like, what? ma'am. So <laughs> she was actually kind of helpful. Like, go to this neighborhood. I think it still exists. If it's still go here, this is where I go get my hair products. And it was still there, you know, like that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I joined a church. I did a bunch of stuff. I was just trying to find something, some semblance of home and some way to like survive, like you said, the weather and the lack of sunshine and the lack of black people. Like, all it was like, ooh. Um, and so comedy really did help me. Mm-hmm. It helped me stay sane. So what kinds of stories were you involved in at the time? Like journalistically? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I first got there, I was doing um, North, Pacific Northwest outdoor activities, which is not really my jam. The, <laughs> the editor and I bumped heads um, and it was partially my fault. I wasn't completely honest on an assignment that fell through and I was like still trying to keep it together. And she was like, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, I don't work with that. And I was like, that's fine. They moved me to a bureau. That was a whole other kettle of fish because the bureau chief was like this sadistic, crazy man. I'd never <laughs> worked with anybody so abusive, so verbally abusive. Um, lesser to me, but more, there was literally a woman in the office where he come in and yell at her and make her cry every day. It was like just the strangest, most dysfunctional, toxic <laughs> um, work setting. I've never, thankfully, before or after had clothes, but never nothing, nothing that bad ever, ever. Just weird stuff. And he was like, it was like the, the bureau was like a land of misfit toys or something. It was like just pew, <laughs> like didn't for whatever reason, didn't work out downtown or whatever happened. And um, apparently he'd had a history of being, you know, so they put him out there. And I was like, oh, lovely. Um, this is my boss. Um, and, you know, I survived all of that. Just mm-hmm. by the grace of God, thankfully, with stand up and a community I started to build. And, you know, uh, it's, it was just crazy. Like I, before I left, it was funny. The this woman came in from the paper I ended up going to work. So she had just work at, she had just left. And she was like, what's the deal with Lee? Like, you can tell me. And I told her all of it. Like, and this happens. And then every day Diane cries. And, then, and she was like, what? 
Um, and then when I went to the paper in Tacoma and blossomed, like just my career took off. Like I was, it, this is where I first became a TV critic. Uh, she was like, okay, so y'all couldn't figure out a way to work with her and you put her out there with Lee. So <laughs> a lot of, amazingly, a lot of reform happened and they eventually fired him after I left because it just was like, this person, you can say she was the worst or best or whatever impression they had of me, but don't you think it's odd that somehow she went somewhere else and did so well? Right. <laughs> and this same man is making people cry. Like, <laughs> let's connect some dots here. Um, so I'm still, it's funny, I'm still Facebook friends with her. And I, to, I, to this day, I thank her for like listening to me because I think that's the other thing. You know, people don't just, walk into a career and blossom, right? There's always this one moment where you were a crossroad, if you will, where you were always like, I could have really, that could have ruined my life. I could have given up. I could have just been like, I'm just going stand up full time. <laughs> it was, it didn't pay as well, but I would have been happier. Um, and so it's just interesting. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think all of those things happen to us for a reason to test you, to figure out like, is this really what you want to do? Even when you have a crazy man who comes to work every day and like, this, Delisha, I wish I were making this up. He had a little note on his desk that was like, he would chronicle what he was doing that day. He was like, take a poop. Uh, I'm going to eat. Like, <laughs> why? And, and that's why he's gone for all that time when he comes in the office. Like, why are you swimming here and doing this? Like, they were, I just had so many questions. I hope to never see that man again. But <laughs> these are the things that sort of make us who we are. Mm -hmm. These are the building blocks that are, that are formed in our careers, in our psyches, in our abilities to decide, like, this is a chance for you to decide, is this really what you want to do? Is this where you want to be? Um, because there's always that risk you could, unfortunately, or hopefully, I didn't, thankfully, but you could run into another personality like that again. Because newspapers have that, you know? Yes. Institutions have that. For sure. But did you feel like, okay, I'm deciding to leave? Like, did you make a definitive decision that this is not, this is a toxic environment? Or did another opportunity just present itself? And further to that, like, how did you land? Did you decide that you wanted to be a TV critic. How did that happen? <laughs> um, I decided to leave. I started sending out my resume. I was mm -hmm. like, they don't know what to do with me. I don't want to be here if they don't want me here. Um, I somehow gotten out of um, the bureau because they heard the stories. <laughs> and I got out of there before I left. So probably about a month before I left, I had gotten moved back downtown to the features department, which is where I wanted to be anyway. Because I'm more of a features writer. I can do news. And I did some news in Tacoma even. Like I had to do like a weekend shift for like cops and crime and stuff like that, which is pretty common when you're starting out in newspapers. But I still was like, I don't have to deal with this kind of abuse. I, I was getting like stomach aches and like rashes and stuff like that. And so I knew I wanted to stay in journalism. So I was just sending my resume to all the papers around there. Like I live here anyway. It wouldn't be that much of a stretch. And it, thankfully, my resume landed on the right person's desk who brought, they brought me into or for an interview in Tacoma and um, the rest was history. And that's where they made me a TV critic because the editor in chief who, who took a liking to me for whatever reason came and saw me do stand up and was like, she's funny. Like she has thoughts. And, uh, you know, the, the TV critic they had at the time didn't seem to, or I don't know, he just didn't really seem interested. And he was more interested in covering pop culture. And at the time it was like a job, because I guess the person who had had the job previously was a pop culture critic and a TV critic. And then they realized quickly, maybe he should just be a pop culture critic and not a TV critic. And they could tell I was way more passionate. So they were like, would you want to be a TV critic? And I was like, that's a thing? Like, you want me to do this? I was like 24 years old. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So, um... That's how it all started. You just need someone to say, okay, she has a voice. Let's hear, I want to hear what she thinks about this or other things. Um, and was it like an immediate click where you were like, this is what I was meant to do? 
or was it more of that evolution to find your style and voice similar to what you you referenced earlier? I think it was a combination of the two. Like I was the weird little kid who had TV guide, the TV guides highlighted. We're like, oh, this is what we should watch. And here's what, you know, this person was in. <laughs> you know, does this actor look from, and my parents would crack up. Like, why do you have that? What <laughs> a Bible. The good old TV guide that used to be in the little basket shelf yes. you know, at, the, at the register at the grocery store. That's the one. And that girl, that was my jam. Like I would have a little, I would highlight it. It was funny because my husband and I were dating. He was like, did you ever read TV guys when you were little? I was like, oh, did I? I had a highlight. He was like, you too. So, you know, <laughs> trust me, there's a shoe for every foot. Um, But yeah, I mean, I was that kid. And so to grow up and to be able to do that for a living, which, you know, was like a dream come true for me that I didn't even know I had. It was just like, of course I should be a television. I love TV. You know, I, I live and breathe it. That's how I got an, a picture into the outside world in Detroit and knew about other things other than what I saw around me. You know, I was the kid who woke up in the morning and we on Saturday mornings and we watched Soul Train, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then we cleaned the house. <laughs> and then we went, you know, and had our adventures for the Saturday. But that, that TV was always a part of my life mm-hmm. and always, you know, sort of instrumental in how I looked at the world. I think it's a lot of for a lot of kids my, or people who grew up are my age. As kids, that's what you kind of get a sense of the world through the TV. Now kids use the Internet and TikTok and, you know, other things. But so I want to talk a little bit about being a TV critic and the intersection of the role that you play and offering your opinions and constructive criticism about what's out there and also being a black woman. Hmm. And, you know, because we know that while there's more representation for us on, on television now, and we've made a lot of strides, when a new show comes out with us, it elicits strong reactions mm. one way or the other, right? Uh. You have the woke set who's going to just dissect everything and, you know, get into what stereotypes are being perpetuated. Um, you have like the anti-Tyler Perry oh universe, God. right? And, and th- that always elicits a lot. And it goes on and on. And, and now we have a lot of conversation around why is all of the content rooted in so much trauma? Like, why can't mm. we just flourish on shows? And there are many different things. When you watch a new sort of Black-centered show for the first time, do you ever feel pressure to elevate it or maybe even criticize it in some way, depending upon the content? Or do you feel like you can give your unvarnished opinion without fear of, ba- of backlash from your own community? Hmm, that's a good question. I think there's all of the, it literally is all of the above. Mm-hmm. I have to be critical because that's the job. So I'm critical to any show the same with the same amount of criticism, which means I'm looking to see if it is representative of Black people in an authentic fashion. What type of Black people are they hoping to attract? What type of Black people are they hoping to depict? If, if, if it's this Black-centered show, how do Black women, you know, fare? Which is, I'll get to why I'm saying that in a minute. <laughs> and so it's always a challenge. And you're right. No matter what I say, I'm going to get pushback. I already know. I already know. I, I've done this long enough to know how it goes. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I'm not afraid of that. In fact, I expect it. And when I don't get it, I'm always like, really? Because I didn't, okay, that's cool. Um, because it's just part of the job. You know what I mean? Like you're going to get critics who are casual critics who are reading you and going, oh, glad that you say them thinking about that. I'll give you an example. So I wrote about Kevin Hart had a limited series on Netflix recently called True Story. Yes, I did see it. Did you like it? You know, I was actually 
surprised at his ability to sort of tap into, you know, a dramatic role. Oh, yeah. Um, as well. So I'll say it kept my attention. I, I am not anybody who like listens to this show regularly knows I'm a huge documentary buff. OK. Regular, just dramatic television. Very limited scope for me. But I did. I've watched more over the course of the pandemic. So I will say I enjoyed it. Like I didn't walk away from it like this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But, you know, I was I was definitely, you know, pleasantly surprised. I'll say that. I was pleasantly surprised as well. Yeah. I I thought that Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes had amazing chemistry. I bought them as brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought both of them brother a game and acting. I felt like in some ways, Wesley Snipes challenged Kevin Hart to be a better actor. I'd yeah. never seen him do anything like that. Mm-hmm. That kind of deliver that kind of performance in anything. So I was impressed. Mm-hmm. I was not impressed with how they treated black women mm-hmm. from the from the death of the the death of the woman who was black and they had a character who was not black say, "Oh, girls like that go missing all the time." Well, unfortunately, that's true. And you're saying this why? <laughs> you're mm-hmm. saying this like this is a good thing. Who approved that line? Right. You thought that was okay to say? Like, you know what I mean? Black women and girls do go missing like that. And they aren't necessarily dancers or groupies at a club. So what does that mean? Like, are we disposable? Or what? What? So there's no explanation. It just drops the line and they keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no, you know, you always do the Bestel test. Like, are there two women talking to each other? There were no two women talking to each other in the whole six episodes. Like, how hard? Would Literally, you? I did not think about that until you said it. But These are the is, things yeah. that I think about mm-hmm. as a, you know what I mean, as a critic. And it's like, it just, to me, and it's crazy because the, there were two directors on the series and the second director was a Black woman. And when I asked her about it, like, what's up with that? She was like, well, um, that wasn't good. <laughs> but I'm a Black woman director, so it doesn't pass the best show test, but it passes the Ava DuVernay test and that they did bring me as a Black woman on to direct. So I was like, Okay, I'll give you that. And so I put mm-hmm. it in the story, but I also put, she admitted that <laughs> didn't pass that snuff test. Nor did any of the women in the, sh- in the show have any relationship independent of Kevin Hart's character. So you either mm-hmm. were his writer, the one Black woman who had probably the most evolved character um, was his writer or his ex-wife or his hookup buddy at the hotel or the woman who all of this drama was around. So it was just like... <laughs> They don't have an auntie. Like, <laughs> nobody has an old black auntie that can just be like, hey, baby, here's some Like, any, please give me something else besides they have to have sex with Kevin Hart or they have to work for him. Mm-hmm. And even, even her relationship with him was strange because the minute she slept with his bodyguard, he was like, what are you doing? Like, what are your dad now? Her, like, what do you care? She, right. There were too many questions. About like, and so my, my, my argument in those instances, particularly, is that Black women should not have to take a back seat in order for you to tell a story. Somehow, when we tell stories about Black women, there are always Black men involved because we always are like throwing Black men, about, like, come on, this Black man is my husband or my brother. Or, or There's always, if there's a Black woman on the show, nine times out of 10, there's a Black man <laughs> somewhere in the peripheral where a periphery, like, he's going to be a part of the story, even if it's yes. not a major part. And I just thought that was kind of cheap for something that was otherwise so good. Mm-hmm. But when I wrote that story, there were Black women who were like, why can't you just be happy for us? I was like, what? I'm defending you! I knew I the why can't you was coming. I knew when you started the story, I knew the why can't you feedback was coming. And I thought it was going to come from Black men. No! 
there were black women who were like, you just can't leave well enough. Like, this is literally my job, ma'am. I, I'm not not messing. I don't know what you mean by that. But my job is to t- look at a show. And I didn't say the show was bad. But as a black woman watching it, I felt like they needed to do some more work. I said the same thing about Lupin. I love that. I love seeing, um, what is his name? Uh, uh, it'll come to me. The actor for Lupin and, mm-hmm. and, and on Netflix. And I love seeing him on a show. Don't get me wrong. His last name is Cy. Why can't I think of the first name? And hey, it's great. I don't know a lot about Black or Africans in France and how they feel and the in the discrimination and racism they face, which they did touch on, which I thought was great. Um, but you're telling me in all of France, they're not a Black woman that Lupin could have hollered at? Like every woman they gave him a talk to. <laughs> Every woman, like from the, the the reporter who was supposed to help him to his ex-wife to his ex-boo, who I guess preceded the wife, or they met around the same time, everybody was white. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I know they're black women. And I have been to Paris. I I had seen it. I've seen expats from America in Paris. I've seen French, I mean African women who are who live there. Like, Absolutely. why can't you guys just yeah, like come on? And and I wasn't the only one saying it, but again, this time it was white people. You don't know how it is in Paris. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> Leave him alone. Why? First of all, <laughs> I love the, this out. I love the voice you get when you when you talk about people responding. So what <laughs> you voice I hear. That's what I hear when I read these comments. Like, you know. And I'm just like, this is this is hilarious. It's part of the job. Mm-hmm. I can roll with it. I will not roll with it. Like, this is the same reporter who wrote about X. I'm like, what are you stalking me? Um. So I, at a certain point, I think we had to turn the comments off. But I just think that it's telling when people get offended by your critique or observation. Doesn't mean a show is not good. It just means no show is perfect. And if you're watching it and you're watching it specifically for Omar size, I mean, if you're watching it for Omar Sy because he's hot, which he is. Mm-hmm. And then you're watching it as a black woman, because of course we do. And he's speaking French and that's hot. Then you're like, but wait a minute. They had one black woman in the show. She was kind of like, racially ambiguous black and she was a cop at the end mm. and it was just like this is what you think of us so uh, yeah and and the criticism came for the first season or first it was i think the first half it, they broke the season down into two or season one and down into two so like the first half of season one people were like that was good where are the black ladies and then season two happened and they were like still no black women but they threw i guess people like shut up look there's a black woman cop like <laughs> that was terrible at least she had like one line it you know, feels I, very I, much like an afterthought when that happened. It was very much after, and it was blatantly um, clear that it was they, they hadn't given it much thought, didn't care until they probably got pushed back from Netflix. Like, hey, people are complaining. They're like, oh, okay, well. And then the other thing they did was they had a scene where he's hooking up with this woman who used to be his boo, who I guess preceded his ex-wife or wife. Yeah, and they're riding around in Paris on a motorcycle while Lizzo plays. And I was like, so are you trolling us now? <laughs> Well, you know, like that is the thing now, right? Like in inter interjecting black music into shows that are not necessarily black, right? It's always supposed to, like, I guess, make pat you on the head, make you feel good. I don't know if it's that or it, it's supposed to like signal empowerment or just swag. I don't know, but I have lately I've noticed that that it's all about our music, sort of sprinkled in whether we're reflected in the cast or not. I know. I know. And so the the argument, I think, from the mainstream or the, the the broader audience, which is not us, is, well, you got a black man on the show. OK, 
So you can't have two black people at the same time. Like what? I don't understand <laughs> what you don't understand about my problem with this. Mm-hmm. And it's fine if you don't. Every black woman who I, when I put it up was like, oh, thank you. I thought it was just me. <laughs> or yeah. I looked at Twitter and they were like, are they, are they serious with this little song? <laughs> and the song was like, because I love you. Like, <laughs> so are you telling me <laughs> I should be crying because I'm watching this as a black woman? Like, what is the message here? Like, did you think about the song that you got? It was just, there were just too many questions. There were too many questions. Have you touched on the, the colorism piece in your writing as well? Oh, right? yes. Because oftentimes, like, when we do get a, a, a black woman who's represented, it's a very specific kind of black woman. Which is not um, a coincidence. And and so touching on that, you know, what has the feedback been? Because I find that when women raise it and when women raise it who don't look like that, right, who don't have this really fair skinned privilege, then it's like you just hate it. Like you're just bitter because it's not you. Right. And so what has your experience been commenting on the colorism piece when, when black women are represented? Well, it's just funny. Alicia, because I'll give you I'll give you an example from something recently that I wrote, like Grownish was, mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> Kenya Bears has a terrible reputation for representing women beyond the color of Tracy Ellis Ross. Yes. If you're darker than Tracy Ellis Ross, you may not be on the show unless you're Ruby or Marseille or Ruby who plays the grandma, uh, Jennifer Lewis, who plays mm-hmm. Ruby or Marseille Martin, who plays uh, Diane. Diane. Mm-hmm. They are the brownest people on the show. You ain't getting dark. <laughs> and if they throw you a bonus hole in there, it's like one, it's a one-off, right? Same thing happened with Grownish. So because they had gotten criticism, it was hilarious because they even had had in the season, I think first season, there was a storyline about like the Doug character um, played by Diggy Simmons, only dating women of a certain hue or dating women who were not black at all. Like, mm-hmm. you know, exotic women or whatever. Not white, not black. Or some whites. I think, I think he had actually dated a couple white girls this show. But... It was interesting because <laughs> one of the criticisms that came after this episode, people were like, should Hallie and 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 uh, Chloe Chloe be talking about this? They're not the brownest crayons in the box. Like, <laughs> is this supposed to... She's the same color as Zoe. I think Zoe's brown. Like, people were clowning them. Like, nice try. <laughs> but what you did really was just bring more emphasis and a, a, a brighter spotlight on your problem with people's problem with the show. Mm-hmm. Where are the skin women? So, right, so then season four, no, season three, they tried to placate people or not maybe placate, I'll, I'll be fair. I, they tried to address it by bringing two dark skin women on the show. Yeah, Aaron's girlfriend be dark skin and they had Luca's girlfriend be dark skin. So, <laughs> so then people were like, so let me get this straight. Two people who used the day Zoe decided to go all the way black, like Africa black. <laughs> like, okay, that's fine, that's fine. I don't know what you're trying to tell us with this, but nobody else could just be just be on the show and be black and be a dark skinned black woman. But fine, they got to date Zoe's exes. Mm-hmm. What happens? They don't eat neither one of them stays. Zoe steals air from the one dark skinned girl, and the other dark skinned girl goes off with the the Sky character to Japan to cover her in the Olympics. It's like, well, that was nice while it lasted. I mean, on one hand, you're like, at least it happened. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you're like, so you were never, this is the last, probably going to be the last season because it's season four and they're only four years of college. Right. So you're just never going to have another dark skin woman on the show. Ever? <laughs> so weird. And I can't really tell you, honestly, I, I, I've been thinking about it. Like, is it better to have happened at all? Mm-hmm. Or is it better that they would have just stayed in their ignorance? <laughs> I so- mean, 
So since you brought that question up, right, I want to talk about it in the context of a non-Black show. Hmm. And just like that. I oh, do not know if you watched And Just Like That. I couldn't right? finish it. What's the okay. thing? I was like, what is the point? Right. So, but I'm sure you've seen enough to know and, and probably heard enough about it of like this onslaught of diversity and just cramming a bunch of issues in, right? Cramming is the problem. Yeah, literally cramming, right? It was so many different things they were trying to address. It was so um, much. That it just felt forced. So on the one hand, you know, I'm watching this and thinking like, I actually really love these minority characters, right? Like just who they were on the mm-hmm. show. And also great to see people get work and all of that other stuff. But it all just, it, yeah, it just felt very much like A, the kitchen sink. And then, <laughs> and, and B, they also were in service to these white Isn't that people, interesting? Which drove me absolutely insane. It was like, they, they couldn't just stand on their own. Everything was about how they served, you know, these three women. So my feeling, right, is like, Sex in the City worked. It worked how it was, right? And of course, there would have been new criticism and different kind of criticism in 2021 into 22 had they not had any diversity. That would not have flown in the way that it did um, right. back then. It got away with years ago. Yes. Yeah. But to your point, I, I started to ask myself, is it better to just leave it alone sometimes as opposed to just trying to throw in something to make it feel like you've addressed the issue? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that there's a way to do it that, that they, they haven't figured out yet. I mm-hmm. think that there's a better way. I don't know necessarily. I don't know all, but I know there's a better way than what they did. <laughs> because then you're like, now you're being stupid. Like now you, it almost felt insulting. Yes. <laughs> to literally have uh, Nicole Ari Parker come on and then they call her Black Charlotte. I'm like, the <laughs> <laughs> maybe she's white, whatever the character's name is, because that's how little I knew about the character. Like, why she got to be black? Shot? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there was just, there were so many moments where I just, I just couldn't get past it. I just couldn't keep watching. It was and very, I might go back later. But yeah, it was very, very cringeworthy. And I think for me, the And the Che was, character. Yes, all of it was just this, like, much. super <laughs> butch, angry, Latino, lesbian. Like, damn, like, this is a lot. And it was then, a lot. It was a whole lot. And for me, I think the moment- Miranda was, was just like, like I, I like the ladies now. Like, which is, like, again, the actress, were, were they trying to address the actress's sexuality and her change in life? Because she was married to a man and then she divorced him and married a woman. That's cool. But I'm guessing in her real life, she didn't run away with a, a butch lesbian Latina woman from a podcast. I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> like- Yeah, it was very so much- So heavy-handed. Like, they went into a writer's room and said, here's the hot button issues and diversity's bingo card. And like, how do we get as many things as we can on the card into the show? That's that's mm-hmm. really what it it felt like. That's what and it I, was. And and oftentimes, you know, maybe this is why I watch a lot of TV, but oftentimes I, I just feel like there are not a lot of things that resonate with me. Right. It's either like the stars sort of power universe. Right. Or the oh, reality TV. That's a different conversation. Yeah. And then there's, you know, mainstream TV where they're trying to sort of cram it in that you got to search, you know, for the shows that you feel like, oh, this speaks to me and it feels balanced and it's being done in the right way. Um, Do you think with such a focus, right, uh, to talk about, you know, racial reckoning, as you mentioned, um, (laughs) one, like, do you think with so much focus on diversity that we will see the tide continue to change in that there will be more critical thought around how Black people are represented on screen. I hope so. I just, I don't have a lot of 
I don't want to be cynical about it because mm-hmm. I have done this for a long time. And so it's kind of hard not to be sometimes. Yeah. And then you'll see glimmers of hope in a show that you don't expect to see. I'll give you a perfect example. You mentioned the power universe and uh, the best one to me so far has been sequel wise power. It is what it was. It was what it was, but power book three, when they brought Patina Miller in to be Kanan's mom, you're talking about a Tony award winning actress who killed every scene she was in. Like there was no scene that like lived after she walked out of the, <laughs> out of the frame. And that gives me hope mm-hmm. because even in the thing that you think, no offense, it's probably just going to be straight up gutter, gully, ghetto, like, oh, here we go. 50 cents, crazy musings. I had to give it to him. He brought it by bringing Patina on. And he said mm-hmm. he wanted her. He see, he'd seen her on Broadway and wanted her to be on his show. That's progress. Not everything, but it is a she's a strong Black woman in a role I would never have expected to see. Uh, or uh, on a show I never would have expected to have seen that kind of portrayal on. Mm-hmm. And found myself actually liking the show. Was, I was just like pleasantly surprised. Like, this is legit good. <laughs> Good actors. Unlike Ghost Book, was it Ghost Book 2 or whatever it is? I have never seen an episode of Power. So let me just put that as like full disclosure. Anything in the Power like sort of world. I know I only know I know so much about it. Like I know Patina Miller is on Power because of the Internet and social media and all the conversations and the and the hilarious tweets that you read, right? You feel comfortable saying this in person? Because, I mean, on in, on record, because people are going to come for you. Oh, yeah. They're going to get you now. Oh, absolutely. And every time I'm out to brunch or dinner, and people are like, you know, what are we watching on TV now? I'm like, yeah, I haven't really seen anything new. Every time somebody says, you haven't watched Power yet? And I, like, defiantly say no. Like, no, I haven't seen it. Oh, so now you're doing it proof of point. Okay, I see you, sis. <laughs> I'm mad at you. You gotta put, you know what? F- find that heel and die on it. I'm not mad at you. Yeah, it's just, you know, it has not drawn me in. And I'm not, it, it very well could. I could press play and be like, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to keep watching it. Because we all have those things that are kind of ridiculous that you get sucked into. But to date, I'm like, I don't even have the bandwidth to now start this and get caught up. So I'm just on the hill. It's not even like for any like moral reasons or like convictions. At this point, I'm just like, I don't have time to binge. Do you? You don't have anything to prove. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I am not in the dark about the show just because it spawns so much traffic, right? On the internet um, that I know so much and I've never seen an episode. That's what's just hilarious, (laughs) right? but, you know, I, the Patina Miller piece, I have I have heard that. I've read about it. That she's she, amazing. You know, she's, she's really dark skinned. And we and I interviewed her about that. I was like, you know, that's not normal. Like mm-hmm. even in, in that universe, there's Tasha, who's who's ghost wife. Just pretend let's not like they pretend like, you know, what I'm talking about. but they ghost had one dark, had a dark skinned wife and he had a Latino. Yes. Or Latina mistress. And people were like. And see, I know this, right? Because again, it's just so, it's this, it spawns so much chatter online. So I feel like I've seen it, even though I have That's hilarious. But you know, the, the thing is, the colorism piece affects women, Black women more. Mm-hmm. It is, it's not that it doesn't exist for Black men. It's funny because I, I had to watch BMF. Um, and well, I'm from Detroit. I had to watch it anyway. So I watched mm-hmm. it for work anyway, too. And it was interesting because the colorism aspect came into that because they were like the 80s belonged to light-skinned dudes. Like if you weren't the barge, the barge adjacent, <laughs> you weren't getting holiday. And like people like Wesley Snipes and Michael Jordan sort of changed the game and they're like, oh, wow, black men can be dark and attractive. Like mm-hmm. it was like a revelation, which is weird to me because I'm like, well, Sidney Poitier, but that was not the 80s. So I don't know. But it's just 
to hear a black man who created it, Reggie, uh, Randy Huggins, who's hilarious, talk about how that he wanted to make sure that he put that in the show was actually, again, inspiring to me because it shows that there are people who are thinking about this and saying, I'm telling the true story. But even in that in that space, they had light skin. Well, the one brother had light skin privilege. Um, and they both of the brothers were like lighter skinned. Mm-hmm. And, you know. When it came to even sort of oddly enough, how the police may have profiled them, right? They looked more, for lack of a better description, Huxtable-esque or, you know, <laughs> of a certain hue. And then they weren't always suspect versus that if, if they were darker skinned and had done those same things, even in a city like Detroit, they may not have gotten, you know, as far as they did because mm-hmm. colorism exists amongst our people. Absolutely. That's a, that is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And, and like to your point, if you say, OK, well, we have black people on this cast, but they all look a certain way and they all pass a paper bag test. That is disturbing. It is uh, infuriating. You know, my daughter watched uh, Babysitter's Club and they brought another they brought a black girl on there. And she was like, that's the black girl. <laughs> Why is the black girl the same, almost the same color as the other girl that was biracial? Like they just did not really make. They probably thought they were like patting themselves on the back. Like, oh, look at this. They got two black girls. Yeah, two black girls are like light. <laughs> so is that a coincidence? Like we're supposed to believe there were no dark skin qualified young black girl actresses. Um, it's just frustrating. And even she, thankfully at this point, is, is articulate enough to say, I don't like this. I'm not watching this because you right. don't care about any. If you don't want to represent anybody who looks like me or you want to exclude people who look like me, then I don't want to watch. Mm hmm. And I applaud her for that, you know, at 11 years old, being able to see that and deciding that. I wasn't thinking that way when I was little. When we were little, it was just great to see Black people. You didn't even think about they were light-skinned and dark You're like, just Black people, there's so few of us. Let's just watch everything. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't ever remember questioning why Sandra and Denise look nothing like their siblings on The Cosby Show. Like, we just accepted it for what it was. Like, you don't like your parents or your siblings, but this family works, right? And I mean, I come from a family with all shades of black people, so I get mm-hmm. it. But not that extreme. <laughs> yeah, that that was just like okay. clearly we're from a different show, right? Exactly. <laughs> but back then, it was like, it was like, just, you're like fine. It, you're like Denise is cool. Her clothes are great. Like, right. thinking about like whose child is this? <laughs> exactly. So, but shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to talk about how the landscape of Media has changed. Journalism has changed. The onslaught of all these various forms of commentary, right? Hmm. Be it podcasting, blogs, people calling themselves social commentators who built entire YouTube followings just on talking about what's going on in the world. Hmm. Um, But in that, you see what I see is like an illegitimate news source saying that they have a source and they're dropping breaking news that is oftentimes wholly inaccurate, right? Oh, I know. Um, or I I was, re- I just finished Andre Leon Talley's memoir and he mm. talks about years of being on the, the red carpet at the Met Gala interviewing, uh, interviewing the celebs as they come in. And he's, you know, got decades of experience in this business. So he understands fashion in a different way, having worked at Vogue and, you know, other outlets and how he was just summarily and unceremoniously replaced with influencers who had 20 million followers, but knew nothing about the industry. And so, you know, thinking about that and some of the things I've seen as, uh, as of late on the internet uh, with respect to like 
this these bloggers thinking they they know yeah. something right and 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 thinking that they are legitimate legitimate news source competing with that right because mm. you are competing with that you are right what has prompted you to stay in the business despite the way that it has evolved it's particularly in the last decade girl when i moved to la in in 2007 so we've been here for 15 years that 15 years yeah 16 15 years and I remember I covered, I think it was something, it was basically when I got here, this was before I had kids, or we had kids, I covered everything, girl. I was at the MTV Music Awards. I was at like the SAG Awards, Grammys, Oscars, whatever, you name it. If it was something, it was a carpet, I typically was there. And I remember going to, <laughs> going to two different MTV Music, or what was I think MTV Movie Awards? One was MTV Music, I want to say. And the music one was the one, oddly enough, where Beyonce announced her pregnancy by like rubbing her belly. And then they show, they show like Jay-Z and Kanye like, yay! Like, you know, it was, it was bizarre. But, you know, back then it was like, whoa! So I'm on the carpet for that. And across from me, because the, the carpets are crowded. I'm, I, that's the one thing from the pandemic I do not miss. I'm like, that was actually good that we don't have to deal with that anymore. It's probably going to come back, but I hate how crowded carpets are. And so, and it's also so very, the hierarchy of the carpet is so insulting that you have TV always comes first. TV is king. And then you have the photography uh, pool, you know, so all the photographers from every outlet that has a photographer from Associated Press to Reuters, everybody who has a photographer there in that pool. And then everything after that is like either radio or print. And print is usually <laughs> dead last and relegated to the side. And don't even get me started because you've probably seen some of this where when it's a black publication, they they ghettoize you and 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 segregate you to the end of the carpet, which mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, talent won't even stop, won't even go the whole way. They they go to a certain extent and then they leave. So a lot of times with black outlets, particularly the smaller ones, because there's a hierarchy amongst the black outlets too. For instance, with Essence, I always had a better space than say, you know, uh, Black Tree or whatever, YouTube networks or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Or um, Blavity or whatever. You know, all that stuff would be shoved to the end or bossip, dead, dead end, dead ass, just at the end. And then Essence would be like maybe four or five slots before. And then Essence got better and better in terms of its positioning because when we would align ourselves with, at the time, we had no longer the we, but when I was with Essence, they would put it with like Entertainment Weekly because they were all part of the same Time Warner family. So mm-hmm. I would get better positioning on, say, an Emmy carpet because I was near a spot right near EW because they were sister publications or people or something like that. Um and so you would see how bad it would get. Cause like literally across from me when I was on the, on the MTV music awards carpets was the guy who some chubby white dude who would put on a leotard and sang a video for single ladies. And I'm like, that was my last MTV awards show. <laughs> I, like, I am not going to put up with this. I'm not going to stand across from the guy who put a leotard on for YouTube. I had to suffer do internships abusive sadistic editors and Seattle and Tacoma and back to Detroit then been to LA because I did go back home to Detroit to Detroit News and then come back didn't do I did the LA thing all of those things to stand here and share space with the single ladies fat leotard guy like this is not you're we're not doing this I'm not this is insulting I if I need anybody because the beauty of a carpet is that you get access to everybody right you get people you would normally never get but I got to a point where I was like, I just won't have access to certain people. <laughs> I just 
will not stand here and be insulted. And his face was technically better than mine. Like, mm. it was, <laughs> you're like, he didn't go to J school. I mean, I, I, at least I don't think so. I had never seen him journalistically anywhere else. He literally was a fat guy in a little chart. And they were like, that's funny. And they and he had, I think he was covering it for like Nicole Bitchy or something. And I was like, that's that's a great gimmick. But what is he going to ask? Right. And that's what is the frustrating, most frustrating thing about it. I'll never forget. I, I was at, uh, I think we called the best, man, it was something. That Kevin Hart movie with Josh Gad, the name of the movie escapes me. It's not a good movie. So it's not a big deal. But I went to the set to interview Kevin Hart. And this woman who was there, who was a, a journalist, brought her friend. And we're interviewing Kevin Hart in a circle. So he would literally go, you, now you, you ask questions. He gets to this woman and her friend. The woman asks her a question. The friend decides to ask, how tall are you? And everybody's like, me, I'm horrified because he hadn't gotten to me yet. So he could have just left. I thought he was. I thought he was going to leave. And he goes, What? And she's like, I mean, I'm this tall. Let's hug. Like, gets up. And everybody's just like, what is happening? Like, who are you? Who brought you here? How did they let you in? This is what I mean. Like, and so everything could have gone south. Thankfully, he was like, okay, well, we got that out of the way. Then he goes back to the rest of the question. And by the time I got to he got to me, I asked if he were, if he were, if he considered himself uh, the new Richard Pryor and Josh Gad, like um, Gene Wilder. And he lit up. Mm-hmm. he was and he had he gave me the longest and best answer of everyone's and everybody was like oh thank god you brought it back to center but i didn't do it for that reason i legitimately had that question in my pocket waiting to tell or waiting to ask until your girl got up and almost blew it up for everybody with her how tall are you like he told he and i was like what 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 is what? i went to j school for this son like this woman is just walking off the street with these random white qu- like what is and these are the moments you have to just <laughs> You have to just rise above. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I know what my mission is. I know what my job is. I still do feel responsible for, you mentioned Tyler Perry. I've interviewed now the whole cast of Sisters. That was not a show that was my jam. It was not intended to be my jam. What I do know, it is the number one show in Black households. There is mm-hmm. no way in the world I'm not going to cover that. And when I interview the stars from that show, even if I'm not a Tyler Perry fan, which I can't really say that I am, I respect the hustle and I like the actors. I appreciate them as working actors in Atlanta doing this thing and like Tyler Perry pumping his money into the economy. It doesn't matter what I like about the show or don't like about the show. What matters is people watch the show and these actors are so happy to talk because no mainstream media has bothered to talk to them. That is what I see. That is when I go, okay, you know, even in this predominantly white workspace, I get it. I understand why I need to talk to you and why you're so happy and eager to talk to me as an actor on his shows because people don't take them seriously. Right. People just like I went to J school, they went to acting school. A lot of them are like theater people. A lot of them are theater nerds and people who went to like, you know, who some of them went to the Juilliard, you know I mean? Like <laughs> these are legit actors. Doesn't matter if you like Tyler Perry. It means these people are working. So respect the hustle and give them a shot. Talk to them. A lot of them have really good things to say. And I, ha- I feel like I have this conversation a lot. You know, people will say, can you believe they're on that show? Or, you know, this is ridiculous. The, the plot is terrible. This, that, and the third. And I'm always saying the same thing. You, you realize some of these people went to like Yale School of Drama or Juilliard or, you know, are, are really well-trained. And I, my response is always like, have you ever done a job that you don't necessarily love because you have bills? Like, I think sometimes we forget that this is work for them too. It's and work. So it's, 
if, if you can be on a highly successful show, it may not be what your dream was for your career, right? You may have wanted to do classical theater or Broadway or really serious dramatic roles, but you you are working in your chosen field. And I think sometimes we have an inability to like accept the fact that just like we need a W-2 or like a 1099, so do these folks. And, and they may end up auditioning and getting on a show that is not their life's work, but it is really successful and is keeping them working. And you have to respect that. Whether you like, the, the the content or not it doesn't take away my criticisms about often how we are portrayed i'm not saying no, that's that, right but i'm not knocking anybody's like ability to pay their bills consistently I, every actress i think with the exception of maybe two or actor and actress or just the actors most of the people on the cast of, of sisters were like i was two dollars away from overdraft mm. um I, I was doing community theater. I was struggling and, you know, sharing an apartment with six people. And, and then Tyler Perry, Perry gave me a shot. How can I be mad at that? Listen, is the dialogue terrible? Yes. Does Tyler Perry need to hire some writers? Yes. Does he need a writer's room? Yes. And even people who like the show will tell you, yes, all of those things. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the actors, despite not having the best dialogue or things to say, bring it every week. Mm-hmm. And his... And he doesn't play like when his production schedule comes up, you can tell they because <laughs> they have them on the same outfit. They're shooting like multiple episodes in 24 hours because mm-hmm. that's how he works. Those people. Well, he but, writes like entire seasons in a, a weekend, which in a bathroom or somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I have my own views about that. His writer's room or lack thereof. But but yes, he is about churning out content. And, and I remember he churns that- it out and. Just like people like Meg Ryan started on a soap opera. Mm-hmm. Don't knock the hustle because everybody has to start somewhere. Right. People just don't become, I'm just walking into this Oscar. Like, no, everybody there started somewhere. And maybe it wasn't Tyler Perry back then, but it is now. And work is work. That doesn't mean those people are going to never, ever work anywhere else again or get opportunities on larger shows with better writer's rooms. It means that they had to start where they are, make the most of the scene that they have and then get exposure and people see them and go, hey, I want to put that person in my movie or I want to put that person on my show. And that's what happens. I mean, Lance Gross, ask him, ask China McClain. Those people were people who Tyler Perry helped establish their careers and they went on to bigger and better things. It happens. It can happen. Absolutely. Yeah, that's my soapbox. So shifting gears a bit, we've talked a ton about uh, your professional career, but you have referenced your husband, um, we've also established that this is a hustle, like journalism. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, there are many people who, there are people who have like the the main gig, but there are also journalists I know who like are writing for all these different publications and and putting it together as well. Um, So being a wife and a mom, how have you managed to balance that and nurturing your home and nurturing and sustaining this career as well? It's, it's a juggling act. Sometimes I drop the ball and I'm not proud of it. I just feel like that should be, go, that should go without saying. And you're not going to always get it right, but I try. I try my best to get it right. Um, I rely on food delivery services <laughs> <laughs> when I have to recap Tyler Perry show. Or I try to, like last night, uh, cook ahead for the week. You know, like I cooked up some uh, ground turkey. So we, my husband, Kind of likes tacos. My son loves tacos. My daughter will eat something else probably. But if I can get two out of three to eat tacos on Taco Tuesday, that, you know, let's get to a set. So I, these are the things I have to think about constantly. Hopefully as things clear up and Omicron is less of a 
a threat. We can have the cleaners come back because I am tired of cleaning toilets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trying to get my, my son and daughter up on that too, and my husband too. We've all been chipping in and doing a lot more stuff than we wanted to do because we typically, if it weren't a pandemic, would have hired this out. <laughs> right. But you, you know what I mean? You make it work. Or I, if I watch a, if I watch a screener, I want to, I try to watch it with my husband, like make it an event, you know, sort of an event. Like we, we, girl, we were burning through those insecure screeners. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he gave me, it was great. Cause he gave me a story. I did. He was like, what's the stuff? And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. And when I went to the press event for Insecure, I asked a question. It was a great, it turned out to be a great story. So these are the things that I like about the job, you know, is sort of making it a family affair mm-hmm. um, whenever I can, you know, and my husband watches football for a living. So, you know, we watch games together. I'm a long suffering Lions fan <laughs> trying to keep the tribute. Oh girl, <laughs> trying to keep the, tribute, the, the, the tradition going in honor of my dad, a tribute to my dad, um, who was a long, long suffering Lions fan. Um, and it was hard to see Matthew Stafford win the Super Bowl um, for the Rams, but that's life. That's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is this is what we do, right? And and I feel like our kids know that. And if they see us in front of our computer, nine times out of ten, they're on their own devices anyway. But they get it too. They understand it. Like even now, my daughter walking by, like she's talking to somebody else again. She get you know she gave me a hard time, but you she gets it. This is what mommy does. So mm-hmm. I think that and my son and husband are at the park right now. <laughs> He's like, fine, we'll go to the park. Um, it's just what you have to do. And what I like about it, though, is that they they want to write. My daughter is like the strongest writer and reader in her class. We mm. work on math, but math was a weakness for us, too. So when I see that, it's, it's, it is a point of pride for me because I my love of reading came from my mom, an English teacher, who also is a good writer. Um, and so those are types of things that you go, is it genetic or is it environmental I don't know, but I know that my son is already telling, loves to tell stories and ask questions and stuff like that. It's just sort of like it's in your, when it's all around you and it's sort of in your blood, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard for you not to want to at least try to do some version of it. Right. Or at least have that in your arsenal. I mean, I know as, a, as an attorney, I know you're a good writer because most attorneys I know who are good writers are, are good writers. You have to write really good briefs. Um, and that matters. Like all those skill sets, no matter what you decide to become will never fail you. Absolutely. And and yes, I sort of, I cringe at poor writing um, <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, oh my God. Yeah, we, we can talk about that offline. Um, but before we let you get out of here shortly, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. You know, you got me with that question, right? This morning I was like, <laughs> brushing my teeth like, what, what should I tell her about the fact that I had two kids was automatically is extraordinary. Like, you're just like that. That was insane. My daughter was born on the hottest day in the history of Los Angeles. My son, my water broke. I didn't even know my water had broken. And then we were, we had a second child. <laughs> um, my husband had to rush to the hospital to join me. Uh, it was, it was, it, it was supposed to be a schedule C ended up just being an impromptu C-section. Um, and oddly enough, was at a meeting for some of his coworkers, unfortunately, well, when, where some of his coworkers were informed they were getting laid off um, because <laughs> Verizon had just purchased Yahoo Sports mm. or Yahoo. So this is the kind of stuff, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, that was extraordinary. But I, but I wanted to give you a professional example outside of those two, the birth of both of our hilariously beautiful kids. Um, and, and say, when I moved to Los Angeles, my very first day here, I was covering the Emmy Awards 
It was the first Emmy Awards I'd ever covered. I literally flew here the morning of the Emmys, got off the plane, threw on a dress, had no idea where I was going (laughs) and drove to the Emmy Awards and covered it. And I would have to say that pretty much sums up my experience in Los Angeles, Mm. (laughs) the baptism by fire and knowing after years of covering the Emmy Awards from the newsroom in Detroit and from watching a television to suddenly being thrust into the actual show and being behind stage. It was one of those moments where you're like, I was born to do this. I mean, this is the craziest scenario possible. And thankfully I never had to do that again, but I was born to be in that seat. I was born to be there. I was born to ask those questions and write a story on a deadline and go to a city and a place and address <laughs> that, and that never had been in and never had driven on a freeway here. Like it was, insane. And I still did it. So that definitely was, I I have to say that was the most extraordinary thing I've ever done on an ordinary day. That's good. Now this question, I have two uh, sort of interview questions. First of which might be a bit cliche, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Dream interview that you haven't gotten yet. Oh man. No, I regret regret never having talked to Toni Morrison. Mm. I really wish I could have talked to her before she passed away. So now... I've already interviewed Oprah a couple of times. I'm actually interviewing Sam Jackson tomorrow. I've interviewed him once before and I adore him. I've interviewed Denzel, Lupita, Pally. Who's left that I want to talk to? I've interviewed Angela Bassett, who I also admire and like a lot. Issa Rae. It's got to be someone. It could be Tony, who's not here anymore. Obama or Michelle, either Michelle or or Barack. I've never interviewed them because I don't cover politics. I have no... (laughs) They are moving. They've moved into the entertainment space. You see what I'm saying? It's very possible that it could happen. That's who I would love to interview one or both of them. You're right there. Yes. That I think I would die. Yeah. That Netflix deal. It's we're just going to put it out there. It's going to happen for you. I'm going to speak it. If you, if you don't, it's going to happen. Thank you for that. Yes. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to interview Michelle and Barack Obama. That would be, that would be a dream come true. I would love that. I would love that. Okay, so second and final question about interviewing. Someone you have interviewed who was a beautiful surprise, meaning they gave a more exceptional interview than you might have anticipated. I would have to probably say Sam Jackson again, Samuel L. Jackson, who just, the minute I walked in, I had um, the book American Gods on me because I was trying to finish it while I was watching the series at the time. And he goes, where are you in the book? And he wanted to talk about the book. Like that was game changing for me. Like just how warm and and kind and down to earth. I, I just was like pleasantly surprised. And, and it was funny because it was one of those things where it was, he was doing a hitman's bodyguard at the time. And mm-hmm. they were like, do you want to interview Selma Hayek and Sam together? And I was like, I write for Essence. They don't really care about Selma, no offense. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay, we'll get you Sam for 10 minutes. So they throw me in this room. And instead of it being 10, he talked to me for about half an hour because he was wow. just we were having a blast. And I was like, floored. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he was so nice. I couldn't believe he wanted to talk to me that long. And I couldn't believe we were like nerding out over books. He's just one of the coolest people I think I've ever talked to. Denzel is not always as nice, but Mm -hmm. I did have later on a good interview with him. One of the meanest interviews I've ever had was Aretha Franklin, who was mean to me not once, but twice. That doesn't Um, surprise me at all. Having read, you know, the biography on her, the the stories that you've heard. I mean, I I think we could talk probably 45 minutes just about (laughs) because, listen, when I read that biography, I was like, you know, what a broken individual underneath it all. Like so much talented talent. But if you know her backstory and really painfully insecure in a lot of ways. Very. And just I don't think like women. 
Not at all. Like literally I was there with a photographer. This is when I was in the Detroit News and I had just moved back and she was one of my heroes. And I was like, oh, Miss Franklin, I'm so excited to meet you. You know, I was all nerdy. And she was like, so I put my hand out like, nice to meet you. And she was like, I'm eating. And like started shoving this corn dog, like a chili dog in her face. And I was like, <laughs> uh, so I like walk away. And then the photographer who was with me, who was a black man, she was like, oh, is that you, Morris? Ha, ha, ha. Wipes her hands, hugs him. I'm just like, okay. You know what? That's, yeah. That, okay. <laughs> Having read the book, like, that actually, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. It I actually just, heart. Yeah, it, you know, now knowing so much more of her story, I, yeah. I felt sympathy, actually. I do, you, you know, we've we've sort of laughed at all like the shade that she threw all these compilations that have come out and everything else but i think you know she had been through so much and losing her she own slapped me in the face life. with her weave like <laughs> you know just like not slapped you in the face though yes like so they they were like okay she lip-synced at the the pistons it was they, the pistons were in the were on the uh, nba finals mm-hmm. and at the game she lip-synced so they go, go, go ask, go ask Aretha if she lip sync. I was like, please don't make me do this. <laughs> they were like, go ask her. So I go, get rid of the courage, go, I tap her you body. You ask the queen of soul if she lip sync? This is what they wanted me to do. This is the cruelty they put me through. So I tap her bodyguard. I'm like, I have one question. Can I just ask her one question? He's like, okay. He was nice. She was pissed. <laughs> I was like, Miss um, Franklin, my editor, <laughs> my editor wanted to know did he mistakenly think you were lip syncing? Lip syncing didn't even all get all the way in my mind. She was like, like <laughs> and like slapped me in the face with her weave and like walked away. And I was like, that's, that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. I'm going to just put that in the story. When asked if she lip synced, she slapped the reporter <laughs> with her hair. I put hair. It was her hair. And she bought whatever. But it was just like, okay, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Fine. I, I was like, just doing my job. I was just doing my job. I feel like there are many women who have similar stories about their interactions with this, the late great Miss Franklin. She just, yeah, she been feeling a lot of women. She liked Mariah Carey and Jennifer, Jennifer Hudson. Hudson. That's it. You weren't Mariah Carey, Jennifer Hudson. God bless your soul. She didn't Lauren. like Whitney. She didn't. I think she liked Lauren Hill. I get that. I got the impression she liked Lauren Hill. Well, I won't delay the interview with that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I read some things where I was like, well, maybe she did it. Um, oh, no. Oh, God, in the book? It might have been in the book, actually. Or an article, I can't remember. But like, you know, I had read some response she had to what Lauren had said about being in the studio with her. And, and it was meant to be complimentary. Um, and, you know, the way that Aretha took it when someone asked her about it, she's like, OK, why would she say that? I don't know what that means. And I don't remember the exact quote, so I won't. I won't butcher it by saying what I think it was. Oh my God. Yeah, but um, yeah, she was just like, okay, I don't know why she said that. And, you know, I you when you read what Lauren said, um, you, you knew that what she meant it in a very positive, like affirming way. But Aretha, like, it just fell flat when someone asked her about it. So oh, yeah, it might be limited to Mariah and uh, and Jennifer. It might have been, <laughs> honestly. I, I think so. I think it's all you get. It's all you get. So looking ahead, what would you want out of the next phase of your career? Oh, good question. Besides the Obamas. Right, right. Um, I want to take on a, pro- a long form project. You know, I think that that's, I know I have it in me. 
when I've done bigger things that I had to kind of get my arms around, it felt good to do that. Um, it's sort of a challenge, a, a, a challenge you set for yourself, but also sort of like, you know, journalistically, you want to grow as a storyteller and be able to tell us. I would love to do like a, if not in podcast form, you know, in long form writing, just to tell a story of a woman in particular I want to tell a story about um, who uh, died on the elect- an electric chair in the 50s in Ohio. Mm. First Black woman to be uh, electrocuted in America. And I just, I'm obsessed with her story. I would love to tell her story. I've been, uh, had some starts and stops. And my job right now is so demanding that I haven't had the, unfortunately, the chance to either probably have a podcast for myself, which I, t- I have a podcast, believe it or not. I haven't worked on it for a year almost, unfortunately. Um, a little more than a year. And um, and then this 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 uh, passion project of mine, I really want to tell this woman's story. So it's coming. Um, I know I have a... Um, a date in mind that I want to get it done by. So that's the challenge I'm setting for myself. If I can get the time, I, no, correction. I'm going to make the time to to go to the next step and tell her story because I think it's a story that desperately needs to be told. So when you get the Obamas, you must reach back <laughs> out and say that I called it. I will take credit for that um, <laughs> when it happens. We're putting it out there. <laughs> I love it. And I look forward to this long form project. You know, I, I firmly believe, and we believe on this show that when you set an intention, no matter how long it takes, if you move in that intention, it will come to fruition and it will come to full completion. So thank you um, for saying that. I believe that it will, it will happen for you. And I have thoroughly enjoyed both parts of this conversation. Um, I, I, have any, I have more fun today because I didn't have to be like, okay, I gotta go. Make this this <laughs> I can just talk, so thank you for that. Yes, we know how to make it work uh, under all kinds of circumstances. You have no <laughs> idea. Uh, so tell the people where they can find you online. You can find me at tvline.com. I'm on Twitter at Makisha Madto, M-E-K-E-I-S-H-A-M-A-D-T-O. And Instagram, same same handle. Um, yeah, so all those places. If you want to get a, get a wider breath or look at what I've done over the years, um, there, there are a couple of sites. If you just Google my name, um, like Muckrack. Bookwreck.com has the bond. Titan is there, which is awesome and scary. But everything I wrote for Shondaland, Essence, The Rap, Variety, um, ESPNW, all the publications pretty much that I've written for are, you can find under that uh, at muckrack.com and just type my name in. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Um, it definitely felt like talking to a girlfriend, which is always good. Yay. And, uh, I, oh, I we're going to be fast friends. Yes. I and I, I love the tidbits about the behind the scenes interviews because I know how nuts some of these people can be. So <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Yes. I, I will. One day you had to bring me on and I'll just tell you horror stories. Like the time I interviewed Shaka Khan and she was high or <laughs> the kind the time that, uh, Ozzy Davis made me cry, or because he didn't mean Ozzy. He was mean to me. He was, but but this handler was like, he didn't take his nap. I'm so sorry. And I was like, I, I would have called him when he napped. I would have, I would have waited for the nap. Um, <laughs> or that's Tyson was one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. So you know, it was really fun. So yeah, good and bad, right? You take the good and the bad. And that's that. And you just make a career. Yeah. So there's another, there's a whole other podcast episode angle here with this untold stories of entertainment journalism, for sure. Girl, her stories you can tell. <laughs> but we're going to let you get back to, to mothering and being a wife. Um, to our listeners, 
you know what to do. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, comment, subscribe, tell three or four people about it. Go look up Makisha's work. We know like the work of journalism is not easy. There's an added layer of difficulty for Black journalists and those clicks are important. That engagement is important. Mm -hmm. So go read what she is writing. Uh, I know I'm definitely going to do that. And as always, if you don't do anything else, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.